0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining this discussion. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and we're really delighted to have today with us Jeremy Hunt, Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. From the earliest stages of coronavirus, Jeremy Hunt, as head of this committee, has been challenging the government's response. Obviously, that draws on his time as health secretary for six years from 2010 to 2012, I'm sorry, to 2018. And he also served as foreign secretary from 2018 to 2019 and is going to talk to us, I hope, also about the global consequences of coronavirus, Brexit, China and indeed what might become of the Foreign Office. Jeremy Hunt, thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we live in excessively interesting times. So let's um, let's plunge into the most immediate questions and the coronavirus response. We're now five, six months in, depending on how you count the start of it. So if I asked you, if you'd been prime minister or health secretary, what would you have done differently?
1: Well, I think um, it's always a bit too easy to have the benefit of hindsight in these situations. I mean, what you have with a pandemic and a new virus is a lot of extremely challenging situations where you can only take uh, decisions based on the evidence you have at the time and you have to be willing to change your approach very quickly. Um, But what is clear now with that benefit of hindsight is that we were over focused on a response that would have been appropriate for a flu epidemic um, and not focused enough on what you would do if it was more like a SARS virus. And um, I was, as you said, health secretary for six years and I was responsible for a lot of our pandemic preparations. And I look back over the preparations that we did and I can see that we were always preparing for pandemic flu. And that mindset continued. And that's why the scientific advice that that Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson received in January was based on a flu response. um, And the scientists didn't model the South Korean test and trace approach, uh, or the approach that was being followed in countries that had direct experience of SARS. And I think that's probably the single biggest learning point in terms of what we need to do to have a a more effective response if we have a second wave.
0: And from what you're saying, it's a mistake, uh, perhaps not just of this this government, but uh, a misjudgment that went back several years to the pandemic planning that you've just described and indeed that you were part of?
1: Well what happens is you know we have experience of um, you know the H1N1 virus here, uh, swine flu, Spanish flu back in 1919 so our direct experience was a flu and we actually have a very well prepared system and we prepared extensively. In fact, we were rated by Johns Hopkins University as the second best prepared country in the world for pandemics. But what we can see now is that we weren't nimble enough in in recognising that a different type of virus might need a different kind of response. And that's why, uh, you know, back in January, uh, SAGE presented ministers with two uh, possible responses. One of them was uh, sort of herd immunity and you try and shield older people but you allow this virus to run wild through up to 60% of the population and the other was extreme lockdown what, what was called suppression but the middle way which was being used very successfully in Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong as well as China uh, we, we didn't even model so we didn't even consider it as an option. And I think that was because we had this mindset that this was an influenza pandemic uh, or needed to be treated like an influenza.
0: And, so, and so as you're saying that the government faced a bold choice between a, a very abrupt, complete uh, lockdown or the herd immunity strategy. But there was nothing in the, in, the, in the middle, as you're saying, that kind of based on test and trace. Correct. Right. But could we just, we're now plunging straight into technical detail, uh, which I hadn't imagined we would get to for some minutes. But there is a, um, a, 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 a thing called uh, Exercise Cygnus, um, which I'm sure many IFG followers would uh, be familiar with back in 2016. And this was part of the contingency planning at that point. Uh, has not been published, which was in itself attracted quite a bit of press comment. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us what that. Um, implied, because the, the reporting says that that showed that the NHS would be at risk from a big surge and would need the capacity to cope with that.
1: Well, it actually has been published because the whole um, exercise uh, results were leaked to the Guardian. So it's uh, it's in the public domain. And um,
0: Right, it's not been published by the government. Then.
1: Uh, um, no, it hasn't been formally published, but it's in the public domain and everyone can look at what, it, what was said. And um, you know, the, the permanent secretary of the Department of Health and Social Care, Sir Chris Wormold, has confirmed that ministers implemented all the things that they were advised to do um, as a result of that exercise, which I was responsible for as health secretary. But the fascinating thing, if you read through uh, those, uh, that leaked report, is that there wasn't a single recommendation to expand the PPE stockpile and there wasn't a single recommendation on testing at all. And that rather illustrates the point that I'm making, that we did very comprehensive and detailed exercises based on a flu response. Um, And we didn't think about why the response might be different with a SARS-like virus, where the priority is to find out precisely who has it so you can isolate them quickly and stop them passing it on to other people.
0: You mentioned the PPE and... um... It's it's obviously been one of the big areas of controversy in all this. Um, How should ministers have handled it? They do do have ministerial control of this.
1: Well, I think, you know, there were some issues with PPE because the stockpile was focused on what you would need for a a flu response. Um, But I think the main issues with PPE were uh, logistical issues, Uh, two sets of issues, I think, on the NHS side. there was enough in the central stockpile, but there were problems in the early days getting it out. Uh, and, um, and also the guidance changed at various moments uh, so that at points it was different to World Health Organization guidance. And our doctors are an incredibly smart bunch of people and they could see that difference and that worried them. But um, those problems were overcome. We, we bought in the army and uh, we did eventually get the, the PPE stocks out to the hospitals. Um, but the, I think the biggest single problem with PPE was how difficult it was for the social care sector to access it, and particularly care homes. And there the issue is that the NHS is obviously a huge purchaser and they crowded out the market So that when the NHS suddenly said we need to buy more PPE, if you were a a small care home chain, you found it virtually impossible to get the higher grade PPE. And that was an enormous problem for care homes. And I think one of the other areas that we will uh, focus on a lot when we start to really understand the lessons of this pandemic is just why it is that our care home death rate has been so much higher than in countries like Germany.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, hindsight uh, is a wonderful thing. and um, but, but, you know, to an extent, we're trying to get lessons now for what might be a second wave and, um, uh, you know, and for the future of this, which may go on quite a, quite a time. What um, do you think, boldly the government neglected the social care sector because of the focus on the centre and the NHS?
1: Well, I think... It's very important to say that right from the start, ministers and their scientific advisors were very focused on the risks to older people in the social care sector. So I think it would be wrong to suggest that there was any kind of uh, willful putting aside of the the needs of the social care sector. But it is also true that, and we, we now know that about one in 20 residents of care homes died from coronavirus and we can look at places like hong kong where there was not a single death in a care home from coronavirus and in fact not a single infection in a care home Uh, and we can look at korea and we can look at germany and i think germany is 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 the most interesting one Um, and they they did some things that we didn't do which i i'm sure we will do this time but At the period where we didn't have the testing capacity to test people being discharged from hospitals, Germany didn't have that testing capacity either. But they said that no care homes were allowed to accept patients being discharged from hospitals unless they could quarantine them, isolate them for two weeks So um, if you were a care home and you had the facilities to isolate someone who'd arrived from hospital for two weeks from all the other residents, make sure that when they were being looked after the staff were always wearing full PPE, you could take people discharged from hospitals. Otherwise, you weren't allowed to take people from hospitals. Um, The other thing was because they had uh, more testing in, in Germany, they found out earlier who had the virus. And they monitored them and they got them into hospital very quickly when their oxygen levels started to get low. And that looks like it might have had a very big impact on um, preventing fatalities. Um, And uh, so I think that was probably pretty significant. We can also look at uh, interesting measures that were taken in, in countries like Korea, which offered a a big increase in salary to care home workers if they um, agreed to move into the care home so that they became part of a bubble with the care home and they weren't going out to the community and back into the care home. And I think that's a pretty effective thing to do. Um, And countries like Israel and Canada that banned care home workers from working in more than one care home. So there's a range of measures we can see that happen in other countries that that can have a significant impact.
0: We've now got £15 billion, an, an astonishing amount being spent on PPE. Does that reassure you that the plans are now in, in place?
1: Well, I think, um, yes, we have, I think, uh, addressed the PPE issues as far as I can tell and, and putting Paul Dighton in, t- in charge of uh, the supply of PPE, um, who's someone I work very closely with in the delivery of London 2012 when he was chief executive of LOCOG. Um, I think it was a a very inspired move. And one of the things that we've learned on PPE is that if there's a pandemic, you have to have some domestic production capacity because the whole world is is looking for PPE at the same time. And uh, so it's very difficult to source it. It was initially very difficult to source it from China when Mm -hmm. they had their pandemic. Then when they got the pandemic under control, we were able to source it from China. But really, you need to have your own domestic supply.
0: Yeah, I mean, fair point. It's always going to be difficult to have nationwide distribution of something of which there is a global shortage. So yes, yes. Um, I, I, I absolutely take that point. Uh, you mentioned uh, Paul Dighton and um, I, I would love your views. On the, on the one hand, we've got uh, the government putting in uh, three czars uh, um, in, in particular aspects of this. He's, he's one of them. Um, on the other hand, talking about quite a lot of structural change. Uh, Public health England's come in for quite a lot of um Criticism over, over uh, the way this has been managed. Um, now we hear talk of the government perhaps wanting to uh, reform the NHS structures as well. How much do you think the structures um, of, of the way healthcare is set up in the UK uh, were a problem in, in, the, in the government's response?
1: Well, I became Health Secretary in September of 2012 when Andrew Lansley's Health and Social Care Act had just become law. Um, and I was really had the responsibility of of implementing that act of parliament and it's an enormously time-consuming thing to do and I'm I'd be very cautious about embarking on another big reorganization. Um, That's not to say the structures are by any means perfect I think there's a lot of um, fragmentation of commissioning in in primary care for example Um, and you know I I wish that the CCGs had been co-terminus with local authority areas to make health and social care integration easier than it, than it has been. Um, but I think the fundamental uh, lessons that we need to learn are, are not really about the structures. It was about big decisions that were made early on in the crisis because we were focused on, on flu and not SARS and also about always making sure that the safety of patients and the safety of staff is is front of our mind and when i was health secretary i, I bit my, the main thing i focused on was the large number of avoidable deaths in in the nhs and actually in healthcare across the world we have about in in normal times we have about 150 preventable deaths every week in the nhs uh, because of uh, operations that have gone wrong, deteriorating patients that haven't been spotted, medication errors, and um, and I discovered to my shock that this is actually a feature of healthcare all over the world. There are hugely higher numbers of preventable deaths in healthcare than would be acceptable in any other industry. You would never accept that in the airline industry or uh, the oil industry or the nuclear industry, and and really this focus on on making sure that every single patient is safe every single member of staff is safe that requirement is magnified several thousand times over when you have a pandemic and um i think we we now understand that and the the best way that you can keep people safe in a pandemic is to find out really quickly who has it and the reason why uh, coronavirus is so nasty and and the evil genius of this virus is that around 40 percent of the transmissions happen with people who are showing no symptoms at all so you could have it i could have it and uh, we could be passing it on to the people that we see and so you need very quickly if you're going to keep people safe from this virus to find out who those people are and um and you can do that the easy way to do that, the obvious way to do that, Bronwyn, is to um, take someone who's got symptoms and find out who they've been near because they're the they're your first choice. And that's what the the, the NHS Test and Trace programme is about. But when you've got high levels of transmission, you then need to start thinking about mass testing. Um, and that's why I think the next big priority, which I haven't yet persuaded the government to do, is is weekly testing of NHS staff because that's where you're likely to get large concentrations of asymptomatic carriers
0: i'm really struck in this that you're, you're you're putting i mean a lot of weight um which you have in parliament on the testing and tracing uh and i'm absolutely not going to disagree with you on that um, but when i asked you about the structures you said look um are uh, really not worth going there again uh well no one wants to take on you know huge restructuring or no one should want to would you really d- uh discourage the government for making any st- structural changes to the NHS, or to things like Public Health England?
1: I'm, I'm not against uh, making improvements and even changes in legislations that would make uh, make things work more smoothly. But, um, you know, the, the big danger you have with a reorganisation is that all your key decision makers are focused on who they're going to recruit for this organisation, who they're going to recruit for that organisation, um, you know, the logos, the location of the head office, and not the fact that we have uh, still got disappointingly low cancer survival rates in this country compared to France or Germany. And we have a, an objective now under the 10-year plan, which is something that I was very keen to champion when I was health secretary, that we should diagnose three quarters of cancers at stages one and two by 2028, Now, 2028 seems a long way off, but we know with cancer survival that if you diagnose people earlier, you've got a much better chance of it it not being fatal. And it would be a real tragedy if the progress towards that goal was interrupted because the key decision makers were having to focus on big organisational changes rather than introducing the screening programmes that are needed on the ground, uh, helping gps to catch those cancers earlier and so for me who feels very strongly that we need to focus uh, in healthcare organizations all over the world on patient safety and improving patient safety and reducing the the high number of avoidable deaths in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. high number high amount of avoidable harm i think it would be an enormous distraction
0: so given where we are now i mean does the nhs need considerable expansion of capacity to cope with I mean, you 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 just described the cancers and uh, we all know that there is an enormous backlog now as well as potentially you know dealing with a winter spike that may happen um, if we just if if we accept your, your your vision of it and say okay no changes to structures what actually needs to happen to the capacity of the nhs
1: i wouldn't say no changes to structures i'm i'm, oh, know, right. the, I'm the 2012 I'm, act was was you know we're getting on for 10 years ago and i think it's absolutely reasonable to look at uh, yeah. Uh, moderate, sensible changes to structures, but um, uh, but you're you're absolutely right. Far more important to the future of the NHS and the social care system is the issue of capacity. Do we have enough doctors, nurses, social care workers uh, to do the jobs that we need them to do? And I became very convinced when I was health secretary that we didn't have enough capacity in either the NHS or the social care system. Uh, for the aging population. The fact that for every, roughly every eight years that we live, our life expectancy goes up by one year. It's a its a wonderful thing, but it means that there's a lot more pressure on the system. And so um, that was why I introduced in 2016 a 25% increase in the number of doctors we train, nurses we train and midwives we train. I would still like to see a much more rigorous system for working out our training numbers because it takes seven years to train a doctor. I'd like to see an independent system where estimates can be made and published a bit like the um, OBR does for the treasury um, Mm -hmm. as to what our training requirements are, because it's always too easy for a health secretary if they're looking to save money in a hurry to cut training numbers because Mm -hmm. the impact won't be felt for five or ten years, but it's obviously a huge mistake for the healthcare system. So the capacity of the system was why I said we need to have a 10-year plan. and negotiated the 20 billion rise in the NHS budget. And we have an equivalent need to improve the capacity of the social care system. Now, I wasn't. I was moved to the Foreign Office before I was able to negotiate the big deal on social care. And then I'm afraid one or two other things happened, such as the fall of Theresa May's government and Brexit and, and we're two years on and we still don't have that 10-year plan for the social care sector. And I think it's an absolute priority, given we've seen how, how brilliantly, the, uh, or brilliantly hard people in the social care sector have worked over the last few months. I think the one thing we must give them as a result of coronavirus is a proper 10-year plan, as we've done for the NHS and financial stability. You're
0: not from the government now. You can say what you want. Uh, this has been problematic territory for um, uh, the, the government and indeed the Conservative manifesto and so. On. But where are you on who should pay for 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 this? As we go into, supposing there actually is a plan for social care, and the Prime Minister said at the start of the month that there was a, the government was finalising its plan. Where would you like to see it come out on on um, on who who pays for it and and what happens to it?
1: Well, Bromwell, we're all getting older, so we've all got to pay for it. Is the is the long is the short answer, um, and I recognise that that is going to mean an increase in taxes. Um, and I think we have to be honest with people about that. Now, precisely which taxes, I think, is um, you know is a matter for the Chancellor. But I would favour a, a progressive approach to that decision. Um, but um, you know, the if you look at just demographic changes between now and the end of this Parliament and also the increases in the national living wage that the government has promised for the lowest paid. Those two factors alone mean that this the annual social care budget about 18 billion a year is going to need to go up by another 4 billion a year just to cope with the additional older people and the increases in, in the national living wage. If you then look at the, um, the unfairness uh, of the fact that we pay for the care costs of someone with cancer, but not for someone with dementia, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the problems uh, in the system, the lack of capacity caused by the fact that local authority budgets are, are strapped, they're never able to pay as much as they should for care home places and so on. Uh, the deal not reforms probably will be another three billion a year uh, when they get up to uh, full strength that would take five years to do but you're talking about you know probably about a 7 billion increase in the the social care budget as necessary if we're going to look after older people with the, the dignity and respect that I think most of us think we should
0: All right, well thanks very much for that and we might come back to you um, in in the in the coming weeks or months when uh, when the government's plans get clearer on that if it's all right with you, I'd like to do a pivot to some of the uh, foreign questions that are around at the moment. And you were, of course, Foreign Secretary and next door neighbour to the IFG, your residence, um, in the IFG's building. Um, you're slightly quieter than the Prime Minister as a next door neighbour, I have to say, when he had that role. Um, do you think Britain has now got its policy towards China right?
1: Well, I think the whole of the West is evolving our policy towards China, because uh, China has become much more muscular since Xi Jinping took over in 2013. And I think um, the penny is beginning to drop that democracies, the democracy of the world, people who share our democratic values are going to have to work together and have a common approach to the rise of China. Um, And that is going to be, need to be an approach that protects our democratic values uh, which aren't shared by um, the government of China. Um, but I think we also need to be careful not to trip ourselves into a, a Cold War two, without properly understanding the differences between China and the Soviet Union and the you know, the the most important point to remember is that the reason that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher won the Cold War uh, was a very large part of it was that the Russian economy was bankrupt and they just couldn't compete with the capitalist West. Now, it's difficult to imagine that being the case with China at some stage in the next 10 to 20 years the Chinese economy is going to overtake the American economy and become the largest economy in the world. And when that happens, the GDP per head in China will still only be 25% of the GDP per head in Russia. So there's going to be a lot of growth to come even after Mm -hmm. the moment that China has become the biggest economy in the world. So we need to find a way to live alongside China Uh, We shouldn't want to constrain the growth of China because it's a wonderful thing to lift people out of poverty. And that's an aspiration for Chinese people, just as it is for people all over the world. Uh, But we need to find a way of making sure that that growth doesn't threaten our own democratic values.
0: So with the Huawei decision, the latest Huawei decision. Uh, do you think we've got it right? Do you think we should go further and 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 look again at, say, Chinese investment in, in nuclear power stations, Hinkley and, and, and so on?
1: Well, I um, always believed, including when I was in office, uh, that it would be a profound mistake to become technologically dependent on China or indeed on, on any country. Um, but I think the concern with China is that when it comes to 5G, I mean, they have a a strategy called Made in China 2025, and they're quite open about it. It's even published in English, and it says that they want uh, to have an 80 percent share of communications technologies around the world by 2025. And I think it would be a a profound mistake to become technologically dependent on China. So I think the Huawei decision is the right decision. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't want to carry on trading with China. Of course, we need to look at critical national infrastructure But the central worry that people have and we need to be sure of is that um, China appears to be a country that is prepared to use its leverage in trade when it has a political disagreement. And so given that, you know, if you just look at what they've done to um, the tariffs on Australian wheat exports, because Australia (laughs) had the temerity to call for an inquiry, uh, an independent inquiry into the origin of the coronavirus crisis. You, you then have to think very hard before you create any new dependencies with China when you know that's the way that its government will react.
0: Now, you could say the same with the US, of using its trade policy in, in, in some of the same ways to get its its way. Do you think we're dependent on the
1: US? Well, I think it's very regrettable when any country, including the US, uh, starts using trade as, as, a, as a lever. Because I think that starts to destabilize the entire global trading system and um, so I, I don't agree with with the way that uh, the, the current administration has been doing that and and indeed has its uh, um, distancing from the world Trade Organization. Um, if you look at what's happened since nineteen forty five a global order that was set up largely by Britain and the United States, Um, it has been the most spectacularly successful order in the history of humanity. Um, The number of people in extreme poverty. When I was born in 1966, it was half the world was on less than a dollar a day. And now uh, we define it as less than two dollars a day and it's nine percent. So there's been a dramatic fall. Um, there's been a dramatic fall in the number of people being killed in conflicts even despite Iraq, Afghanistan, (coughs) Syria and so on and that is because we started trading with each other and stopped fighting each other compared to to previous generations so I think that's been immensely powerful and important but that that international order is now under threat and uh, we need to be a champion for free trade, we need to but also recognise that the the international institutions that have served us so well since 1945, the United Nations, NATO, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the World Trade Organisation, the World Health Organisation, they all need to be updated and modernised for the the 21st century if they're going to survive. And I think it's vitally important they do.
0: Well, we're leaving at the moment, uh, uh, in slow motion, one of the... uh constructions of the, not the immediate post-war, but um, but but since the war, the the European Union. How important do you think it is that we do a trade deal with them by the end of the transition period this year?
1: Well, it's obviously very, um, very important to businesses up and down the country because we've just had a lot of disruption from coronavirus and uh, a no-deal situation would be further disruption. Um, We would cope I mean, we have a very resilient economy, very resilient businesses, and we will get a trade deal at some stage in the next uh, few years, even if it's not possible to do it by the end of this December. But of course, it would be preferable if we possibly can to have it by this December.
0: What do you think it's done to the Conservative Party? We were talking to Rory Stewart um, last week, briefly a rival of yours in the last Conservative leadership contest, and he he called the party right wing now um uh, and um, talk to his regret that uh um people like him weren't in it anymore
1: yes, I disagree with Rory on that. i think um if you look at the the approach this government has taken and i've you know I've had my differences with some of the things that have happened, but um you know the huge um investment in the um the furlough scheme uh, a bigger role for the state in this country than pretty much anywhere else in Europe, in propping up businesses, the extra sums of money that are going into the NHS, the the reform of the social care system that's been promised, the additional police officers. Normally, the left-right spectrum is uh, decided on big state, small state lines. And on that basis, uh, this is not a small state government. So um, I I wouldn't characterize it in, in that way, much as I respect... Rory. Um, Of course, this is a government that is pro-Brexit. Boris led the Brexit campaign. Mm. And and actually, I think that has united the Conservative Party, including people like me who voted to remain, because uh, we recognise that that was a a decision that was taken democratically. And I think it would have been immensely damaging for the fabric of our democracy if having given people a choice, we hadn't implemented it.
0: All right, well thanks very much indeed. Let's go, let's go to questions now. We've got uh, quite a few flowing in. Uh, I'm going to give you advance warning. There's, there's a big appetite for talking technical details of, of our health system. Um, but let me take the first one from uh, Tony Helmus of the Policy Institute at King's uh, Kings College, London. And he says, uh, you say that when you are health secretary you're always planning for a flu p- pandemic rather than a coronavirus. What has never been clear is why with SARS in 2004 and MERS in 2009, surely it was obvious that this was a risk. You ignored these cases, he, said, he says, uh, but why?
1: Well, I think it's a, a very fair question to ask, Tony. I mean, we, you know, I think we all had groupthink, but, I, you know, what you do as a, as a health secretary is you take the advice of people around you as to what the pandemic preparations are that you need to do. And, um, and you know... The advice I was given was, this is what we need to do. And we spent an enormous amount of time doing it. We didn't just have the you know, three-day Operation Cygnus. I remember we had a, a global health summit where the G7 countries came together and we discussed global health security. And we did a, you know, we had an enormous response to the Ebola uh, uh, pandemic. So you're right. We had SARS and we had MERS um, and they were there. Um, and no one thought we needed to be doing these things. So I, you know, I was was the boss, so I have to take my share of the responsibility. Um, But I think it's also the case that in January of this year, um, we we could have seen what was happening in Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and reacted more quickly to their approach, Um, because, you know, in January, the World Health Organization said we need to model our response on the MERS and SARS response. So did the European Centre for Disease Control. Um, but inside Europe, it was really only Germany that followed that approach. Britain, Spain, Italy, France, and also the United States followed the flu playbook. And that's why our results have been so much less impressive.
0: Embedded in, in this question is, is, is really... Um the, the thought that uh, how, how do you avoid always fighting the last war? Uh, pre- preparing for the last disease, if you like, is it your view that the test and trace network that we're finally getting up and running uh, could be deployed for all kinds of illnesses, contagious contagious diseases,
1: diseases that you're trying to suppress quickly, uh, uh, where where you can where you've got a test that works? Then then yes. But I think the real lesson from this is is to find a way not to fight the last war and to have a system that is open and allows you to decide and learn very quickly from what's happening around the world. So, so my response, Tony, I, I, you know, I don't think we were wrong to prepare for flu because actually we could have had a flu pandemic um, and we would have needed to be ready for that. But I think that the structural change that could have avoided some of the things that went wrong would have been to publish the scientific advice that's given to ministers. If the advice being given to ministers in January had been published, it would have been peer-reviewed by scientists up and down the country who would have said, you know, why aren't we why aren't we looking at what's happening in South Korea? And that's in a, in a slightly different way. That's what we do with the Bank of England uh, Monetary Policy Committee. Their, the advice they give on interest rates is published. You know which economists have voted for interest rates to stay the same or to go up or to come down. And so there is transparency there, and that allows for a lot of peer review. And I think that model introduced in 1997 Mm. has been pretty successful because it was introduced to try and stop a, uh, a return to inflation, and basically it succeeded in doing that. So I think more transparency, given that we have such a strong science base, is probably the best solution.
0: All right, thanks for that. Got another interesting one from Dr. Andrew Potts saying, should social care be funded and run by central rather than local government? Which sounds very very technical, but um, it really gets to some of the problems that we've had of um, local government having, uh, which has had its budgets very heavily squeezed in the past decade or so, having to pick up the responsibility for, for social care. And, um, and, and then, then you've got an enormously wide variation of what actually happens across the country.
1: You know, money is money, whether it comes from the centre or from local government, and the social care sector needs more money. So I'm not precious about where that money comes from, but I agree with you. One of the reasons for the pressure on the social care system has been the pressure on local government finances. Um, I am, I'm instinctively a bit cautious about uh, setting up a new centralised system. Uh, I think that local authorities could do a very good job Uh, with social care if the funding was there and maybe some of that funding they they find themselves and some of it for sure will need to come from uh, the treasury. But um, I think one of the things that we need to learn, if we we were talking earlier about the PPE issue, is uh, that you do need integration between the health and social care systems, single electronic patient records that flow between both systems, single care plans for, for patients you don't need, necessarily need to merge the organisations to do that, mm. um, but you do need to join up what the, the NHS and the social care systems do.
0: All right, well, we've got a question from Ellen Tranter saying, well, how exactly would you go about greater integration of, of health and social care, um, accepting your point, uh, as as many, many people do, uh, that this is desperately needed?
1: Well, I think I'm um, I, I probably just echoing my caution about uh, big structural reorganizations, I think the way to make this work is to make it very patient focused and very staff focused. So on the patient side, I think it's an absolute requirement that we have um, a single care plan that's used across for, for every vulnerable patient, whether it's a disabled person uh, in, in, who is younger or a, an older person who's, who's vulnerable. We need to have a single budget, a single care plan, a single electronic record shared across the system. But I also think we need to look at the training and development of staff, because at the moment what happens in the social care system is that social care staff feel very undervalued compared Mm -hmm. to NHS staff. We had some very, very sad testimony to the Health Select Committee by uh, someone who did domiciliary care, who said that she was tutted on as she was going around her duties on public transport for wearing a uniform. People said you shouldn't be wearing a uniform in public. And we had other social care workers saying that NHS workers were allowed to go to the front of the queue in supermarkets, but they weren't. And I think we've got to recognise the incredible work that social care staff work and, and try and have a, a career structure for social care workers, in the way that staff in the NHS have a career structure.
0: Do you think the government's immigration uh, guidelines that it's 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 put out, uh, which has obviously evolved quite a bit, but uh, the, the the latest one, the um, prime minister said, well, look, I'm looking to British people to fill the gaps there in social care, rather than relying so much on um, uh, on bringing in a lot of people. Though the the great number of people um, from other countries working in in UK social care will will stay, he said, or can can stay. But uh, uh, what do you make of the immigration guidelines?
1: Well, um, had we had the economy that we'd had six months ago, um, I would have been extremely worried because we have virtually full employment in, in London and in the southeast. And I think it would have been very difficult to um, fill the gaps in the social care market that are currently being provided by people coming from overseas. Um, it looks like we might have considerable unemployment now um, which is of course a great tragedy Um, and so I think we've got to see the extent to which we are able to uh, fill the um, 140,000 additional staff that we need in the social care sector from the domestic labour pool and I think we have to be ready to change the immigration uh, requirements if we find that we can't recruit them.
0: You're quite right. I mean, we've got uh, re- recent figures showing extraordinarily low number of job vacancies compared to um, the past couple of uh, years. Um, let's. Um, I've got a, a, one in a different direction from Robert Moreland, um, which is about the EU. Are you concerned that the government doesn't seem to be following, he says, in, in its current negotiations with the EU, the agreed political declaration of last year? particularly about the coordination and cooperation on foreign policy?
1: Well, I I, um, don't interpret what the government is doing in in the same way that uh, Robert suggested there. Um, I think we do want to cooperate with uh, our our EU friends and neighbours on foreign policy going forward. It's incredibly important that we do. I mean, you know, we were talking about China just now, and I think it's highly likely that there'll be some retaliation from China, and um, in those situations, given that, you know, what happens to Britain one day could happen to Germany the next or Italy the next or France the next, uh, there are enormous benefits in coordination. And I'm sure we want to do that. Of course, the primary focus is a trade deal. And I think the, funnily enough, the foreign policy and the security cooperation is is easier because it's so patently a win-win to, to work together in those areas as sovereign countries on the trade side, it's much trickier. So I think what the government is saying is, yeah, we want to do all that foreign policy cooperation, but we need to, you know, get to the nub of the question: is can we do a trade deal or not?
0: Okay. So thanks. Thanks very much for that. But an interesting one from um, Jack um, uh, Neji. I, I hope I've pronounced your surname right, Jack. Um, saying should healthcare spending be seen as investment rather than current account spending?
1: Look, I think there's a difference between heart and head. In the answer to that question, Jack. I mean, you know, with my with my heart, I of course I think it's always an investment to invest in in people's future and help them to lead happier and longer lives. Um, but you know, in technical terms, um, it, it wouldn't normally be considered an investment. And I think uh, you have to. We have to be honest with people that we can only spend the money in healthcare. That we are generating as an economy. So to make a change like that, if that's a way of trying to pretend to yourself that you can spend money that you haven't actually generated, uh, then you're going to end up having a rude shock sooner or later. So, um, you know, some people uh, find it curious that I was part of David Cameron and George Osborne's government that brought in some very painful public spending cuts in 2010 mm-hmm. And I'm now one of the loudest voices arguing for increases in funding for health and social care. But actually, it was consistent. My reason for supporting those difficult changes in 2010 was because I wanted to put the economy on its feet, that then allowed me to argue for the 20 billion increase in the NHS budget in 2018, and what I hope will be a generous increase in the social care budget. So I think um, the important thing is not how you classify these things, but whether you appreciate that strong economic growth and a successful economy is what gives you the ability to put more money into health and social care.
0: Okay, well, following that, Jack and others have come in, uh, um, Was saying, uh, is a pay rise for NHS staff feasible at this point?
1: I really hope so. I mean, you know, um, I, and I would, you know, I I hope they get something that recognises the the incredible sacrifices they've made. I mean, I think, for people who've who've been enjoying, you know, a quiet time in lockdown, working from home, spending more time with their families, uh, we also need to remember the incredible pressure on the health and care front line, and they had that big peak with coronavirus, which is which is of course um, amazingly stressful in its own right because of the risks to their personal safety, but of course they've now got huge backlogs, mental health, cancer care, hips, knees, um, a huge range of areas, and uh, they have the frustration of of not being able to work at full capacity because they can only see patients in a socially distanced way, they have to wear PPE, so they really really have earned a pay rise. Okay, and then we've
0: got various... um... Got a lot more questions, but again about social care, and um, which I think you've really covered. Let me ask you then, which um, several people have, uh, have asked, um, how the, the UK should handle the US at the moment. Uh, obviously, we're, we're moving away from Europe, uh, and the US is going through uh, something of a volatile time in its international relations and our current incumbent president trump is at the moment behind in the polls but really anyone it's anyone's guess at this point uh who wins the uh the election in in november how would you advise the 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 government in this you know inevitably one of the most important uh relationships that the uk has
1: It, it is our single most important foreign policy relationship and for a very good reason because um you know without wanting to blow the trumpet so much. The, what we were talking about earlier, about the, the global order that has existed since the Second World War, um, that has been extraordinarily successful. And it's been successful because uh, the democracies of the world have worked together, uh, Europe and the United States, and we've created a, an international order that, amongst other things, protects the rights of smaller countries. So um, that was why George Bush senior thought it was so important to retake Kuwait after it was invaded by Saddam Hussein, because, you know, a big country invading its neighbor like that would have been a very common commonplace thing in the 17th century, 18th century or 19th century. But in the 20th century, since the second world war, we had established an international norm that that did not happen. And that has been, has led to, you know, some of the big increases in prosperity and freedom that we've seen across the world. Um, So what should Britain's priority be in a situation like that? We need to recognise that the international um, alliances that were successful before are looking quite threadbare. There are enormous pressures in NATO, for example, because uh, American taxpayers are perfectly reasonably saying, Why are we spending 4% of GDP on defence and picking up the bill for perhaps a third of Europe's entire defence spending? Mm -hmm. When you guys are spending between 1% and 2%, that doesn't feel fair. Um, Then uh, you've got all the issues around the rise of China, what's happening in the Arctic, what's happening in space, what's happening in cyber. And, you know, really the only effective way to deal with that is to bring the democracies of the world together. So you talked about what's happening in the US election. Of course, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't really matter because if it's President Trump, we'll take one approach, which uh, certainly when I was Foreign Secretary was always predicated on the importance of trying to bind America into the family of democracies. Okay. Um, if it's President Biden, we'll take a slightly different approach. Okay. But I think our role has, is, is to be the country that tries to link together all those democracies.
0: It's is an extraordinary phrase to talk about trying to bind America, uh, which defines itself by its democratic uh, constitution, to try and bind it into the uh, uh, network of democracies. But um, so, for example, uh, if Taiwan, if China's approach to Taiwan gets more aggressive, you think Britain has a role in, um, in in working with America and others to try and deter China from taking it over?
1: Yes, I just would say, uh, Bronwyn, that it's not actually an unusual thought to think about how you anchor America into the Western family of nations. Uh, if you remember, Winston Churchill had an enormous battle to persuade the United States to take part in the second world war. And, you know, there's always been a strong isolationist streak in American politics and American thinking. So, um, so I don't think, uh, it's, it's particularly unusual, but, you know, in terms of China, Taiwan, um, you know, we recognise how big, for the Chinese issues around uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, are. Um, but if we want to have any hope of, uh, of of all these issues being resolved peacefully, then you know we have to present a common front as democracies, and it would be a hugely destabilising act for democracies all over the world if a fellow democracy in taiwan is a very robust democracy was suddenly invaded by a country that wasn't a democracy and so that's why i think we do need to really work together with other countries Um, you know we recognize the strong sense of history that, that china has and the fact that it's a big priority but that issue has to be resolved peacefully
0: Okay, well, let's wrap up with a couple of questions which follow this theme. They're all flooding in now. Um, One from Jonathan Kelly saying, would you be prepared to make a prediction for the US general election and the um, presidential election? I think he uh, is referring to. And then um, uh, uh, someone else anonymous but saying, do you think the UK should have an Indo-Pacific strategy as France, Japan, India, Australia and the US all have? And if so, what should it be? We've either got a one word answer or a very long answer on the second one.
1: Okay, well, let me do the second one first. I mean, I I think um, we do want to have a presence in the Indo-Pacific. I don't don't think any European powers have a really substantial presence. But, um, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, uh, the the founder of Singapore, uh, you know, said when he was talking about international relations, he said it's not enough to be liked. You have to be needed. And I think the way that, you know, we... Get respect in the world, and the way that we're able to champion the democratic values that we believe in is by having a presence in in all corners of the world. So I think it's a good idea for us to um, to, to be there with Australia and Japan in the Indo Pacific, and you know, and and I think uh, we want to work with them in issues that affect us closer to home, like cyber warfare, for example. Um, with respect to the American election, I mean, I I call the Brexit vote wrong. I think I called the last American presidential election wrong. So I'm afraid I'm not going to be drawn into making a prediction on this one.
0: Let me just ask you then, how much difference does it does it make to us? Because on China, that's not a frivolous question, because on China, the two candidates at this point seem to have remarkably similar views.
1: Well, um, I think they're both uh, hawkish on China, Mm. but they probably in practice take a different approach. And uh, I think it makes an immense difference to us who the American president is. Um, But whoever it is, we want to work with them to be that bridge between um, Europe and and America that, that, as we talked about before, anchors America in. Because, you know, in the end, the democratic values that we all share are infinitely safer if we are working together with the largest and most powerful democracy in the world. Not the most populist democracy, but uh, the the most powerful one.
0: With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. But thank you very much for talking, and not just about coronavirus uh, and and the health system, and and even more technical questions are coming in now, but but also about some of the the foreign and uh, security questions. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. Everyone, thanks for the terrific questions, and thanks for watching. And uh, we'll be back with you soon. Jeremy Hunt, many thanks. Thank you, Brahmin. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more, and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk/slash events.